Hello, this is Up Talk from Chatelaine, and I'm your host, Rachel Giza. On this episode... They were so powerless, right? They were nobodies. No political rights, no careers, and yet they made themselves powerful by doing something so weak. Emma Donahue, the author and Oscar-nominated screenwriter of Room, has a new novel called The Wonder that's set in 1850s Ireland. We're going to talk about the power of refusal, of fasting faith, of science and suffering, all with Emma Donahue coming up on UpTalk. But first, let's debrief the week that was. A new CBC Angus Reid poll just came out, and it reveals that Canadians want minorities to do more to, quote, fit in. What does this response reveal, and what does fitting in even mean? And we're also going to talk about Kim Kardashian's worst moment of her life. The reality TV star was found bound and gagged after being robbed at gunpoint by masked men in Paris. It was terrifying, but the chatter on Twitter wasn't always so sympathetic. Why do people take attacks on celebrities less seriously? Well, here with me to discuss all this is Monica Heisey. She's a writer, comedian, and the author of I Can't Believe It's Not Better. Hey, Monica. Hello. It's nice to have you back. I'm happy to be back. And joining us for the first time making her debut on The Debrief is Sadia Ansari. She is an associate editor at Chatelaine. Hey, Sadia. Hi, I'm excited to be here. I'm so, so happy to have you. So, um, Sadia, I want to start with you because you are actually working on a piece for Chatelaine about the new CBC Angus Reid poll. So can you give us a bit of background on what it's about? Sure. So the poll is, um, you know, as you said, Rachel, a partnership between Angus Reid and CBC, and they looked at Canadian values across a broad spectrum. So they looked at how attached are you to Canada? How do you feel about NAFTA? Um, and this, you know, the thing about minorities was kind of like one of the questions that, that CBC ended up sort of honing in on. So their their headline kind of screamed, Canadians want minorities to do more to fit in. And that was the question that was asked. So actually, people were given a choice between two responses. One was, you know, should um, minorities do more to fit in with Canadian society? Or should um, we encourage cultural diversity, so encourage, you know, um, people retaining their language, that sort of thing. So 68% said that we should encourage minorities to fit in. And the reaction to this has sort of been, it's very polarized, right? Like in in the context of like Kelly Leach, you know, her talking about um, we should screen for Canadian values, that sort of thing. And like there's this conversation about what is Canadian value? What is a Canadian value? What is Canadian society? What does mainstream mean in Canada, given that we've kind of all grown up with this... um, story of like this multicultural mosaic that we're all in that's kind of seeming to like fall apart right now as people have these strong reactions. So for me personally, when I when I read this kind of headline that Canadians want minorities to fit in as a, you know, quote unquote minority, it made me feel kind of like hurt. Like, what do you mean? Like, I'm a minority, so am I not Canadian and I need to fit in? Like, what does that that mean? And, you know, the Twitter reaction was like, yeah, this means that 68% of Canadians or like 68% of those people that were surveyed are racist. And I think that that's kind of like a knee-jerk reaction that's actually incorrect because, you know, one of the other survey questions revealed that two-thirds of those same respondents, so 67%, thought that they were actually satisfied with how immigrants were integrating into their community. So that, that kind of like shows you that this makes absolutely no sense. Like if you're happy with immigrants <laughs> like integrating, then like, and but you're not, but you think that they should fit, minorities should fit in more, like it makes no sense. Like, yeah. and also conflating minorities, the word minority and immigrant, like it's, it's just kind of a mess. And so 
for me, I mean, I'm writing a piece right now just about like what what do we mean when we say Canadian mainstream? Like who gets to decide what yeah. that is? Yeah. What do you think when you heard about this? It's always interesting to be exposed to the viewpoints of people that you don't get to hear from very often. And I've basically created a bubble for myself and I'm sure lots of other people have where saying something like uh, immigrants need to do more to fit in or minorities need to do more to fit in isn't something that I would, anyone that I know would say, I don't think. So it's a reminder, I think, to me and to other people uh, within my same community that there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of the way that we talk about what Canada looks like. But I even wonder, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that these viewpoints don't exist, but what I think is kind of weird, and I know, Sadie, you, you actually went through the whole, all the results of the, of the poll, and I just read the news stories around it. But I feel like I have a problem even just with the premise of the question, which is, do you think minorities need to do more to fit in, which feels like a leading question. It's sort of like, I feel like implicit in the question is the suggestion that there is an in to fit into and that certain people aren't fitting into it. It feels like this kind of question actually um, is loaded to me. It doesn't feel like a neutral question. I think absolutely it's not a neutral question. And I think that it's kind of, I don't know, like not to be cynical, but it was you know similar to the, the survey that was done a couple months ago by Environics about um, Muslims in Canada and just looking at Muslims in Canada, which asked similar questions. Like it asked Muslim Canadians, do you think, you know, you should... Um, adopt Canadian customs, and 94% of them said yes. So again, it's like, okay, we're all Canadians, and we agree that we should be Canadian, but like nobody has had a meaningful discussion about what that means, and like we just have all these um, these kind of political moments, like the election, like Kelly Leachin, you know, her her crusade against anti-Canadian values, um, that sort of thing. Like, it is a really sensitive time, but I also think it's an opportunity to have a more meaningful discussion. Like, I think the mosaic is like, there are some tiles that stick out more than others right now, guys. And, you know, we don't treat all the tiles the same. So, like, let's stop pretending, right? And we're not a melting pot of beige. That's, like, right. really not what we're about as Canada. So, like, let's kind of, like, reassess, you know, what we mean by Canadian culture. And, like, you know, Trudeau has this really, like, beautiful way of expressing that we're a post-national state, but, like, we're not. Like, this yeah. is not realistic. So, like, let's let's talk about it. Well, yeah, and I think the la last thing I think that's worth noting is that um, millennials were more comfortable with the idea of people embracing multiculturalism, for lack of a better term. Um, and, and millennials are just cyclists who drink cold brew coffee, right? <laughs> so all the terms are problematic. All the terms are, like, just lumping people together and, and overly generalizing. But I think what it spoke to was the idea that Younger people were much more comfortable with people of different races and ethnicities. I mean, I think that's maybe what you can, what, what the data suggests. Is that fair to say, like, Sadia, like your reading of, of the generational shift? You know, some people are like, oh, yeah, this is all, we're all just going to be so much more progressive 30 years from now when, like, a certain generation dies off. And, like, I, I don't believe that. I think sometimes people just become more conservative with age. Or, mm -hmm. like, yeah, if you're the hipster cycling to La Hortica <laughs> House to get your curry, you're, like, super pumped about it. But, like... You know, if it's like my dad works in your office and he's warming up your curry, you might make a face. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I think it's like very situational right. and it's very easy to say like, yes, I'm comfortable with this. Yeah. But are you actually comfortable with like talking to people across generations, talking to new immigrants, like all that sort of thing, not just like reaping the benefits of like good multicultural food? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and one of the depressing things is that the longer that um, immigrants were here in Canada, it seemed like their views kind of hardened and became more conservative. Right. So... I think everyone's afraid of like having something taken away, like whether or not you're an immigrant, whether or not you're like, quote unquote, 
old stock. And I think um, if you're indigenous, you're like, what are you all doing here? <laughs> Leave us alone, <laughs> right? Like, I think it's just like- You wanna talk old stock? <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> right? So, so I just think it's like everyone, I don't know, is like when you ask these types of questions, like it, it's about fear of what might be taken away from you by right. somebody else. Like, is this a zero sum game? But yeah. that's also sort of how the question was worded. Like, did they ask a question like, should white Canadians be doing more to make immigrant new immigrants feel like they're part of Canada, right? Like that kind of is the same question, basically. Like, are people getting along with each other? Are we feeling comfortable with each other? And it just completely shifts who the onus is on. And if you're going to ask the one question, it seems you should at least ask the other. Okay, we uh, let let's let's move on. We've got time for another quick topic. Um, Kim Kardashian, uh, early in the early hours of Monday, was robbed by gunpoint in her Paris apartment. She was there for Paris Fashion Week. She was bound and gagged and locked in the bathroom by perpetrators who escaped with millions of dollars in jewelry. And I think at least two of them came in and they were dressed like as French police officers. But since the news broke, there have been some people on social media who have been posting jokes about the incident. There's lots of schadenfreude about it. And then in response to that, there were celebrities like James Corden and Chrissy Teigen who came to Kim's defense, reminding people that celebrities are humans too and that they also deserve sympathy. Um, Monica, what was your reaction when you heard about this? I don't follow the Kardashians, but I felt really bad for Kim. I would feel bad for anyone in that circumstance. I, I can't imagine how frightening that would be. I was surprised. I mean, I wasn't surprised because it's the internet and of course this was going to happen. (laughs) Um, But I was surprised, I guess, to see people who I wouldn't have, like I saw people I wouldn't have expected to joke about a woman being assaulted and and robbed at at gunpoint, uh, getting really getting in there uh, and contributing to that conversation in a way that, that was confusing to me because they're also people who maybe are even fans of the show and it's like she put herself out there as a public figure, so I understand that she's photographed in public a lot. But no, nobody, I mean, nobody deserves that. Yeah. If she had maybe just been just been robbed and, and wasn't there, maybe you could crack a joke. Like she doesn't, money's not a problem for her, but like, you know, like bodily integrity and like feeling safe in your own home, like those are rights that everyone has. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, just the description of it. I mean, people come, it was, you know, three o'clock in the morning or something. People came into the apartment where she was staying. I think she, she was sort of begging for her life and, and, you know, was locked. I mean, anything could have happened. And um, I mean, she was, her spokespeople have said that she was shaken, but physically unharmed, but it had to have been really scary. Um, Sadie, do you think it's hard for people to feel empathy when something like this happens to somebody who is in the public eye, has so much money, and in some ways is, you know, she's got as many haters as she has fans, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that she's one of those celebrities that, like, the public thinks, like, well, she belongs to us because she opens up, you know, so much of her life to us. And I think celebrities like that, you know, people just feel like, well, I can make fun of her. I can, like, I can take her down. Like, it doesn't really matter. She has money. She has, like, she has, she's living the life. So what does it really matter to her? Like $10 million or how many of her million dollars worth of jewelry? Does it really matter that that's taken away? She's fine without really stopping to think about like, you know, the human experience of being robbed and, and thinking that you're secure in this like high end hotel. And like, you know, the security guard was tied up and she's tied up. And like, it's kind of, I mean, I don't know. I think it's like we make celebrities caricatures and, and sometimes they make themselves caricatures. And I'm not saying it's her fault that this is why people are treating her this way, but it's just like a really unfortunate side effect of celebrity culture. 
and uh, yeah, the internet. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but it's like, what's the what's the line? Like, can you make fun of celebrity divorces? Like when the whole Brangelina thing was happening, there was so much online commentary, and then there was there were allegations of child abuse, and people were like, oh no, now we stop. You know, like people make fun of botched plastic surgery. People make fun of all sorts of things, and like, what's your line? Like, people aren't going to be nice to celebrities depending on like how they present themselves to the world yeah. so it's like what's our moral line like how should we treat them like I don't, I don't know the answer but I don't think that's true I think that if Meryl Streep had been robbed at gunpoint I don't think that people will be making fun of her I think Kim Kardashian in particular there's this gleeful takedown of this woman and admittedly Kim Kardashian is much more outwardly materialistic and interested in displaying her wealth and sort of this performance of both celebrity and like richness rich womanness um than Meryl Streep is. But I think there's something in particular about the way that Kim does it, her shamelessness, that makes people want to take her down and makes people excited when things like this happen to her so that they have something that they can, like, dig at her about. Yeah. Is there something about this... um the fact that she's a reality star and the fact that so much of her life, like you were talking about this a bit earlier, Monica, like so much of her life has been exposed and out there. I mean, she takes you know, hundreds of selfies a day and you know, she just puts herself out there that when something that's so random and unscripted happens when something that, like, I think she seems like somebody for whom everything is in her control. Her image is so in her control. Does that add a different kind of quality to this? I think so. I think it's the same sort of weirdly and, and maybe perversely, it's the same sort of impulse that makes people excited by those celebrities without makeup. I think covers, right. it's this thing of like, this isn't the part that you're supposed to see and you get to see it anyways. And it's, it's what I think you were talking about earlier about access and ownership. People feel possessive about these celebrities. They feel entitled. And, and it also something that has been odd to me is um, Kanye is, there's a clip of Kanye very sweetly stopping his concert being like, there's a family emergency. I have to go. And he's, I think been getting some sort of praise for that. People think it's like very sweet and cute and they're sharing it like, Oh, isn't this cute? And then making fun of his wife for being in a situation where her, her <laughs> life felt like it was in peril. Sure. There's and like a double this, standard. Yeah, it's yeah. the same situation. They're both just reacting naturally to the exact same situation, and Kanye did it right, and Kim's worthy of scorn. Let's uh, let, let's leave it there. Um, thank you so much, the both of you. Uh, Monica Heisey is a writer, comedian, and the author of I Can't Believe It's Not Better. Sadi Ansari is an associate editor at Chatelaine, and she's writing about that CBC Angus Reid poll, and you can find it coming very soon to, at chatelaine.com. Like many of Emma Donahue's stories, The Wonder is inspired by real-life events. It's based on the many cases of fasting girls, which were reported from the 16th to 20th centuries. Women and girls, and on the rare occasion men, claimed to live without food for months or even years. It was a kind of anorexia, often religiously motivated. Well, Emma's novel centers on Lib Wright, an English nurse who served under Florence Nightingale in the Crimean War. She was brought to Ireland to watch over an 11-year-old girl named Anna O'Donnell, who has apparently not eaten for months. Is it a miracle, a fraud, or are more sinister forces at work? It's a thrilling psychological read. I loved the book. Here's my conversation with London, Ontario-based Irish writer Emma Donoghue. 
Welcome to Uptalk, Emma. Thank you. Uh, and congratulations on the Giller shortlist. Oh, yeah, I was so chuffed to hear that. I know I feel like a proper Canadian writer now, you know. <laughs> when, 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 you get, when you get shortlisted for the yeah, proper Canadian exactly. prize. Yeah, exactly. I've been here 18 years, but somehow getting on the Giller shortlist, it's like I count. <laughs> That's finally it. In your, and you were nominated, obviously, for your new novel, The Wonder, which is uh, inspired by real historical events. It's based on the cases of fasting girls, which were reported from the 16th to 20th centuries. What was it about this phenomenon that, that piqued your interest? Well, I don't think I've ever voluntarily missed a meal in my life. So it was not any <laughs> personal kind of click between me and the fasting girls. But I was fascinated by how they were so powerless, right? They were nobodies, you know, pre-20th century girls with no, no political rights, no careers, and yet they made themselves powerful by doing something so weak. You know, they, they withdrew, they, they claimed not to eat, they said they didn't need food. Um, so through such a negative, they hit the headlines and got a vast amount of attention. So it was like this astonishing cultural fantasy of, you know, the ultimate in femininity, girls who don't have appetite. Yeah. Well, and also to me, it seems that like within, within the limitations of what, of what girls could do, within the limitations of what in their life that they could control. So, you know, they didn't have political rights. They didn't have often an opportunity to choose who they would want to marry. They, I mean, all of those things, the body is the one thing. That, that these girls could actually con- control. Absolutely, and it's almost as if they were picking up on those unspoken cultural rules, like you know, girls shouldn't eat too much, girls shouldn't ask too much, girls shouldn't you know, be sexual. And they were saying, okay, I'll, I'll take that to the maximum. Yeah. And certainly, um, they weren't all overtly religious, but many of them had, had very obvious religious affiliations, some Catholic, some Protestant. But I knew I wanted to write a story which would include everything I found most fascinating about this phenomenon. So I thought I must set it in my homeland of Ireland, not just because I know Ireland, but because Ireland is the perfect place to set a hunger story, because the Irish, we define ourselves through having survived the Great Famine. So I thought if I set it in the 1850s, you know, the shadow of that famine is still lying across the psyche of the nation. Um, you know, the, the country paths were literally still bumpy with the, the skulls and bones under them. So um, this story of a girl voluntarily fasting would, would take on added resonance because you don't want to get all caught up in one person choosing not to eat and forget all the millions who can't eat. You know, yeah. you have to remember that irony all the time. In looking at this history, there's something about this story that also feels very relevant now. And I think you know, part of it is, to me, about the way that these girls have taken control of their body. The fact that you talk about these girls getting celebrity and fame, these nobodies, which, you know, at the time this is said, obviously, it's not the culture of, you know, putting things up on, you know, Pinterest or on your Instagram. But, but yeah, it's like, it's like reality TV. It's like somebody putting themselves in a situation where they are clearly heading towards harm, and yet you can't look away. Yeah. And everybody who's looking at the situation is complicit in it. Mm-hmm. So I was particularly interested in how the medical establishment and the media would play a role in this, because in several of these real fasting girl cases, there was some kind of watch staged. So you have the newspapers, you know, reporting twice a day on what was happening, and you'd have trained doctors and nurses watching. And of course, as soon as you're watching something and imposing really clear rules, you are changing the situation. If any of these girls were sneaking food, for instance, being watched stopped them from sneaking food, and so some of them died. So, you know, I love, I suppose as as a novelist, I've often felt quite mixed that I, I get totally engrossed in writing about a situation, and sometimes I feel I'm not doing actual good in the world, I'm just being a parasite writing about it. And I know 
journalists must sometimes get that yeah. feeling. And I know, you know, medical people too, they're often in an agonizing situation where they would love to fix somebody's health and the patient is saying, no, I don't want it. Or the yeah. patient is saying, I want something like assisted suicide and the medical people are saying no. So there are many ethical agonies in, in these professions. And so I chose a nurse and a journalist as, as central characters. And the whole thing is narrated by the nurse. Yeah, by, well, by Lib, who she comes to Ireland. She comes into, you know, the, the, the town that this is set in is right in the middle of Ireland. And Lib is, she had worked under Florence Nightingale. She is a woman of science. She is, to a degree, a kind of British snob. She looks down on the Irish. She looks down on Catholicism. She's like us, but she's got those mid-19th century prejudices. Yeah, yeah the Irish yeah. were considered to have to have brought all their problems on themselves. Yeah, and, I, and I'm curious about what you wanted to what you wanted to convey through the character of Lib? Well, it's it's never interesting to have a character who doesn't change. You mm-hmm. know, I never have a character who's simply a mouthpiece or simply a, you know, a fixed point of view on a situation. Every character should be changed by the story. So I knew that the nurse would be wanting to, in some sense, convert the girl to her own more rational worldview, but I needed the nurse to change too. So I thought, let her bring all her baggage with her. Um, you know, she's the character that, that is nearest to most of the readers of this book. She's got the nearest thing to a 21st century viewpoint. She's relatively scientific for her day. But, you know, she's still got all these deep down prejudices. And that way I was able to stage almost a kind of dialogue between Ireland and England and the, the modern world and the older world and science and faith. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of group think versus individualism as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and in lots of ways, Lib kind of represents a bit of like a proto-feminism in a way. I mean, she is a woman who has been independent. She pushes up against the, the power figures around her um, and then also creates a kind of solidarity with Anna, with the girl who is who is fasting. Definitely. And, um, you know, I, I never try and impose 21st century views on my characters who are from way back then. But I suppose I often choose ones who were a bit ahead of their time. So, you know, Nightingale uh, was very feminist in her teaching. And in particular, I used a wonderful book Florence Nightingale wrote called Notes on Nursing, where she gives meticulous instructions on, you know, the moment by moment business of nursing, not just the medical stuff, but insight into the nitty gritties of how to look after somebody by nursing them, even tiny things like, you know, when to bring in the food and which way the light should come in the window and how much to talk to them and how honest to be with them about their case. So she really raised the profession of nurse to an extraordinary degree from just kind of skivvy up to something nearer a profession. So I thought a, 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 a Nightingale trained nurse would be the perfect point of view character on this appalling situation of this little girl who doesn't seem to be eating. Yeah. I wanted to ask about that relationship with faith and suffering in this. So in Choosing Not to Eat, Anna is, from the outside, looking like she is physically suffering, um, and yet sort of retreats into this world of fantasy and almost a, a, a kind of religious joy or religious ecstasy. Can you talk a bit about that connection between the church and suffering? Sure. Um I suppose this novel is really all about the pros and cons of religion. I'm very interested in the ways in which a faith, any faith really, can can uplift and support and, and can make the powerless feel powerful or just as good as anybody else. And maybe Catholicism in particular with its its history of focusing on, you know, nobodies and, and slaves and servants and tax collectors and children, you know, its idea that the last can be first and the low will be raised high. And um, maybe it allowed, you know, a broken present peasant people like the Irish to really feel that they were maybe, if losers in this life, they were going to be winners in the next. So I can see why they clung to it. But on the other hand, there are so many ways in which um, an extreme fundamentalist religion can exert 
sinister effects on those around it, you know. Yeah. Um, the, its tendency to cover up problems, to hide away damage that's been done to children mm-hmm. and to women. Um, it's, it's refusal of the body. It's, you know, saying no to all the body's appetites. Um, so in a way, this novel is, is, I would put it in the context of lots of other fiction that's been looking at the long history of religion and, and, and the damage it can do. Yeah. Well, and also in thinking about this in terms of, again, to me, this also feels like having some contemporary connection to the idea of, I feel like this moment people are asking this question of how do these modern kids run off and join something like ISIS? What is the appeal of these extremist groups, particularly for women, um, where they know that they are going to be, you know, sold into marriage? Um, t- and and I think this book kind of gets at the idea of what that appeal is. Yes, I thought a lot about young people being radicalized and in a way, you could have set this story in, you know, a, a conservative religious group or cult of any kind, or even in, you know, 1960s communism. Um, it's the, it's the group thing I'm trying to get at. It's the whole forces of a society where a little girl is told to sort of, you know, shut your mouth and not be a trouble. And um, I think really young people are, are wonderfully idealistic and zealous. You know, you can see it in, in the eyes of children, you know, when they first learn about something like poverty they're like oh but that's so unfair we should give them dinner you know and and that wonderful moral energy of theirs can be harnessed in a sinister cause you know they 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 learn what we teach them and they they pick up very very you know even unspoken rules from adults and they apply them in an extreme way they're not worldly they don't know about all the hypocrisies so in a way they're easily they're easily converted to any kind of zealotry and the same goes for things like eating disorders in a way these fasting girls are so interesting because you can see them as religious mystics and you can see them as anorexics and i was always trying to bear those two things in mind and um, they weren't exactly like modern eating disorders in that they didn't tend to focus on what they looked like there was very little none of them were saying vanity, i'm thin yeah. but they were saying I'm pure, I'm, I'm refined, I'm lofty, I'm feminine. That was the vibe. And I'm controlling the situation, mm. which I think is, is what they have in common with, with eating disorders. Mm-hmm. It's not just about the food, it's about control yeah. of their lives. Um, so I was fascinated by the idea of taking this little girl who, on the one hand, yeah, you can see as, as sick and deluded and wrong, but on the other hand, showing that she has that amazing kind of zeal of the religious mystic and that, you know, both by not eating and by being so intensely immersed in a world of prayer, she's on a high that we can't even guess at. Yeah. So um, I, I really tried to, to treat her gently and respectfully as a character rather than just saying, oh, this stupid child is so wrong. Mm-hmm. Because, again, there's no point writing a novel if you know, already know what you think about all the characters. <laughs> yeah. There's got to be a wonderful ambiguity to it. So that yeah. every now and then you think, you know, that our sensible narrator is just a prig and that our, you know strange mad child is in fact briefly right Uh you uh you dedicated this book to your daughter and i spoke to you about a year ago when you were when you were nominated for the oscar for uh room it was right around that time and um you talked about sort of keeping thinking about your son and writing about a mother-son relationship and in this you've dedicated the book to your daughter did you think about your relationship to your daughter while you were writing this book or were you conscious of being a mother of a daughter when oh, you were writing definitely this? yeah and also my daughter she's only nine and the girl in the book is 11 but my daughter's very thoughtful and kind of 
ahead of herself in that way. So we have very long analytical conversations and I wanted to give the rapport between the nurse and the girl some of that. Yeah, I didn't want them always to be arguing. So I said to my daughter, listen, I need something for them to talk about that's not um, all fraught and to do with food. So um, can I have some riddles? So she chose me riddles from her book of riddles and she worked out exactly which ones an 11-year-old could plausibly guess and what answers she might give. So yeah, my kids are now my consultants. (laughs) And I have a kid's book coming out next spring and that is, is just stolen from them, practically every line in it. And oh. I, I discuss the plot developments with them as well, and they weigh in. They're like an editorial panel. That's what, so and what, what, what prompted that? What prompted... I suppose I was reading a lot of kids' books with my kids, and the good ones are so great and the bad ones are so terrible. And as a parent, you feel kind of, you know, trapped reading a bad book just because your kid likes it. <laughs> <laughs> so I got very interested in how to write about darker issues for kids in a way that isn't all heavy. So in particular, dementia. In, in the first book of what I hope will be a series, uh, their grandfather gets dementia and has to move in with them. And everything I've seen about dementia is just so, you know, like, let's stop the action and explain these sobering facts to our children, you know. And I think everything is improved by a big sprinkle of humour. So I, I've tried to keep it very sparkly, even though it touches on pretty meaty stuff. Mm-hmm. Reading the funny book about dementia. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, were, are you? I know you were raised Catholic, as was I. Do you still? Are you observant at all still? Is no, I left the Catholic Church in my early twenties, mostly because of their homophobia. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and you know, yeah. Ireland—it's—it's uh, it's been so interesting how much kind of soul searching the Irish have done about their history with the Catholic Church recently. Um, and you know, these battles are ongoing. Uh, Irish women are currently marching just for the right to choose. You know, we don't have abortion in Ireland yeah. yet. So, so debates about you know the the rights of girls over their own bodies um, are all too fresh. Yeah, again, yeah, again, again, another way in which the, the wonder feels quite, feels quite current. I mean, I would never write historical fiction if it was irrelevant to today. You yeah. know, I don't write it in order to comment on today, but mm-hmm. if, if you're thinking hard about questions uh, about your society, it always will comment on yeah. today. Is it, I mean, in terms of your, your, your attraction to, to writing about the past, is, is, does it pull you in because you like the research of it so much, because you feel that, um, that there is perhaps um, an understanding of what certain periods meant or what they reflected as opposed to when you write in contemporary I think the settings? reason I do it is for flavor. I love that feeling of, of going on a long trip to completely other time when people's assumptions were different so where the mindset was different as mm. well as the food and the clothes it's not just for the food and the clothes certainly I, I love that you know deep down strangeness of people who have human impulses just like us and yet every now and then there's a moment when your character has a thought and your reader goes oh my god did she really say that yeah. so so I, I like that tension between how they're just like us and how they're different um I do also enjoy the fact that historical fiction can allow you to probe the roots of things. Like I've written a couple of books set in the 18th century when they were just beginning to get that idea of, you know, maybe maybe all human beings are fundamentally equal. You know, brand new ideas like, oh, maybe slaves shouldn't be owned or maybe women should be free. Um, and if you go back to the very origin of those ideas, you can capture some of, some of their amazing newness and freshness. Um, for instance, Hilary Mantel has a, a wonderful book about the French Revolution um, called A Place of Greater Safety. And she really makes you feel that moment of, you know, the revolutionaries sitting around in a cafe going, let's change the world. You know, she, mm. she gives it that 
that edge as if it's happening right now. Um, she makes it so unstuffy. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I really enjoy doing that. And do you have to do some sort of almost like a method experience to forget the things that you know in a way or to imagine a world in which um, you can't just reach out to somebody on a phone or you can't just that, that the kind of absolute loneliness that someone might experience at a time when um, you might live far away from the people that you care about or... Yeah, for instance, emigration. I've done it twice, but when I write about emigration, it's, it's almost a different thing, you know. Back then when you were, you know, when your mother was ill back in the old country and, you know, it might take you a year to hear whether she died or not. People had to exist in a state of not knowing for so long. You had to bear such awful ambiguities. Um, But then they didn't have jet lag, I suppose. (laughs) Each era has its own problems. Um, I wanted to, uh, to uh, just to circle back to the question of, of setting, um, because certainly in reading this and then thinking about, about room, the sense of confinement, even though one takes place in the present and one in the past. Um, also one, in The Wonder, it's, it's self-imposed confinement. It's, it's a psychological prison, not a literal one. Absolutely. So in many ways, it's the opposite of The Wonder. Yeah, and to me, it, feel, it does feel like it's, it's a similar impulse in the adult-child relationship, but, but, but it's a reverse one. So in one, it's a, it's a child who is allowed a child in a confined setting who is allowed to imagine something large and wondrous in this confined setting and then the other it's a child who is lively and creative and creative who shrinks into this smaller and smaller place and also it's a very different take on motherhood because in room you know ma is his mother um by birth and by you know raising him um and i i I was always slightly uneasy that maybe I'd made a bit of a cult of the mother figure, you know. Um, so in this in this case, the mother in um, in the wonder is is terrible. Really, yeah. she's she's so proud of her saintly daughter that she's happily watching her daughter uh, pine away. And so in this case, the nurse, who's a total stranger to Anna and very culturally alien to her and a total stranger and no legal tie, no birth tie, and yet this strong bond springs up. So in a way, I was kind of testing what makes a mother. Mm. And as, as because I'm in a two-mother family, you know, I'm, I'm very aware of these questions about exactly what it is that constitutes your, your claim on a child, mm. you know? What is it that defines you as a mother? And it's certainly not just the giving birth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think also, too, the, the, the idealization of motherhood, and I think that can also happen. I'm also in a two-mother household, and I think sometimes the idea that there's a, almost a superiorness to, to the idea of, like, you know, two mothers, or what does it mean for a child to have that kind of force coming at them with, with two mothers? Yeah, sometimes it's two naggers. <laughs> two people saying, have you done your homework? <laughs> and of course, there's a danger of spoiling them too. I remember um, once when my son was about five, you know, he was sitting on the stairs. I was I was doing up one of his shoes. Chris was doing up the other and he was laying back reading a book and I thought, oh, we're making a monster. <laughs> no, it's true. I've had, I thought the same thing because sometimes I think that my son will think that women just exist to wait on him I, because because that, that, that's what he knows. He knows of women waiting on him and taking care of his every need. So I thought it might, we might be creating a feminist, and now I think we might be creating a chauvinist or some sort of horrible sexist character. Very possible. <laughs> but our sons will never be afraid to buy tampons, so that's good. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Um, the last thing I wanted to, to ask you about, um, you have had this sort of extraordinary experience. You've you know, um, of extreme um, uh, output in in writing from, you know, uh, from Room to the screenplay of Room to Frog Music to this book. You've just written a children's book. You were away in France for a year. What are your your ambitions now? Are they different than they were? You've been writing your, basically your whole adult life. I have to confess that I, I do five-year plans like Stalin. 
um, you know, every five <laughs> Did you years, say like just like Stalin. Every, every, they don't involve killing people so much. But every five years, you know, I write myself out a list of things I want to get done in the next five years. So, so I would say what's new coming up is that I, I have these four kids books that I want to publish and I want to continue to do more in film and TV. You know, I had a lot of offers last year because of the whole Oscar nomination and I, I thought they're not going to keep offering. You know, this is a, a temporary fashion, so I better seize a few. So I'm doing a couple of screen projects, um, but I'm still doing, I'm doing um, a play of Room, so I'm still involved in theatre and I still want to do fiction. So I'm just pulled in all directions, but, you know, my five-year plan gives me some kind of sense that it's, it's all going to get done. Thank you very much for your time. It was lovely to talk it's been a pleasure. That was my conversation with Emma Donahue. Her latest novel, The Wonder, is up for the Giller Prize, which will be announced on November 7th. Thanks for listening. We want to know what you think, so send us your feedback. You can follow us at Chatelaine on Twitter and Facebook for more info and updates. You can subscribe to UpTalk from Chatelaine on iTunes or Google Play. And if you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. UpTalk is produced by Rachel Matlow. The theme music is by Ralph. I'm Rachel Giza. And this week, I'm giving the last word to Solange Knowles, whose new album, A Seat at the Table, is finally here. Don't touch my hair When it's the feelings I wear